Thank you very much, Pete and Claire and Mercatus. The book owes an important debt to Mercatus, thanks to the workshop that Pete mentioned. Uh, but it's, it is especially important to me to have a chance to talk about this book at George Mason, as Professor Kaplan just pointed out. Uh, my association with institutions in and around George Mason now exceeds half my lifetime. And I'm going to start off by talking about some of the sources for thinking about the problems of the book before I talk about the central claims of the book. And one of the sources for thinking about the problems of the book is, uh, is a set of questions that I encountered in my association with institutions in and around George Mason, in particular in my work with scholars through the Institute for Humane Studies, uh, dating back to the time that I was an undergraduate and a graduate student, having to do with questions of polycentric law and legal ordering. There's real interest in parts of classical liberal legal and social thought in thinking about the ways in which there are sources of authoritative norms in society that arise from sites other than the state and that have arisen in social settings and historical eras in which the central state is absent. And scholars associated with IHS have done crucial work over the last two generations to talk about ways in which those sources of norms can be freedom-enabling, freedom-enhancing ways to live free lives. And the fact that we're able to order our lives without all of, nor all of the normative guidance that shapes social coordination coming from central direction of the state, uh, that is itself a feature of a free life. And I carried that thought with me into my subsequent education in relatively more orthodox contemporary analytical liberal political theory, uh, which is oriented around the questions of how liberty is constituted and justice is defined in political societies, in political terms, in more or less all the same way. Now, even back then, I've confirmed this by looking at some of my old notes from IHS lectures, <laughs> uh, even back then there were things that worried me here. I had a thought for a long time that a great deal of the polycentric law literature proceeded as if the normal case of choice of law was something like choosing Delaware contract law. And that's a normal choice of choosing law. Transact parties to a transaction who are reasonably sophisticated actors um, choose the good law, the efficient law, the law that serves both of their purposes in a relatively transparent way. And what it is that's appealing about the ability of contracting parties to choose Delaware law, I found easy to wrap my head around once I'd been introduced to it. But it's also the case, and as someone whose research agenda was then heavily concerned with multiculturalism and religious freedom, it's also the case that the norms that people live under in their various social orderings that arise outside the state itself have many sources other than economic reasoning. Uh, it is the case that a great deal of what gets called legal pluralism in a literature that is almost entirely disconnected from the literature that calls the same phenomenon polycentric law, 
It's the case that most of the cases that arise under the label of legal pluralism are much more like parties to a marriage, before they enter their marriage, agree that their marriage will be, will arise under and will subsequently be adjudicated according to, say, Jewish law or Muslim law. Where the content of Jewish law or Muslim law might be given by some relatively authoritative single decision maker. You could get something like a prenup that says, when we divorce, our divorce will be adjudicated by this rabbi operating under these interpretive rules. But in fact, it's normally a lot more inchoate than that. Uh, and the relationship of free choice to, for example, a default marriage rule. In the society, if two Muslims get married, we will treat it as if their presumed wish is that their marriage be a Muslim marriage according to law, which means that their subsequent divorce will be adjudicated not according to the civil law of the state, but according to the norms that we will find somehow arising out of the Islamic legal tradition. That's not to say that I was against that. Indeed, I wasn't, and indeed I'm not. But the way in which that is freedom enhancing or freedom enabling at least gives one pause in a way that the choice of law among sophisticated contracting parties into the contract law of Delaware typically doesn't. That then gets to the source of law, uh, the, the source of the problems in the book uh, that's much more directly the proximate cause of my having started this research. And that was my dissatisfaction with the debates in liberal political theory about multiculturalism and religious freedom as they were conducted in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Part of this dissatisfaction was out of the sense of novelty that many people seemed to bring to it. Within political theory and political philosophy in that generation, partly under the influence of Rawls and Nozick and the way in which they revitalized political theory and political philosophy as normative disciplines, uh, there was a funny sense of, well, the questions are questions like justice and ownership and property and economic distribution. And now we have this strange new thing to talk about, which is cultural minorities and religions. Uh, now, liberal political theory and political philosophy weren't alone in this. It was a disturbingly frequent thought across the social sciences and certainly across a great deal of political science. After the fall of the Berlin Wall in an era when it was thought there's an upsurge in nationalist sentiment in the wake of the Yugoslav Wars, in the wake of the breakup of Czechoslovakia and the breakup of the Soviet Union along roughly ethno-national lines, what is this strange new thing? We thought that all the serious business was the Cold War and strategy and ideological disputes between capitalism and communism. Uh, in fact, there was nothing new here in that sense at all. And when people realized that, they then swung the pendulum the opposite way and said, ah, oh, we're dealing with the problems of ancient primitive atavistic hatreds that haven't been overcome. Modern nationalism isn't that either. These are enduring structural features. They have always been important questions about the shape of a modern state and the shape of life in modern political society. 
and that they were obscured for a while by scholarly attention to questions having to do with ownership or economic distribution or civil disobedience in the Vietnam War, which somehow was still being treated as a current issue in political theory when I was in graduate school in the mid-1990s because, well, people went to grad, my professors went to graduate school then. Um, that's not a truth of the world. That's just the sociology and history of academic disciplines. So I was dissatisfied with the sense that, well, we have our theories of justice that we developed and now we have to work out how they fit these new problems, multiculturalism, cultural minorities, ethnic minorities, religious groups. But more importantly, I was dissatisfied with a certain kind of impasse that had to do with a war over words. The war over words was one group of people arguing that liberalism is a theory of autonomy. Liberalism is, is a theory of the self-directed choosing individual in a way that in the history of political thought and moral thought we associate with Immanuel Kant and John Stuart Mill. And so when we liberals encounter this weird new phenomenon, which is that people have religions, uh, we should not be quick to say there is really robust freedom of religion because freedom is for choosing. And what religions do is they tell people that they're not choosers. You grow up in a tradition, you grow up in a religion, you grow up in an ethnic or cultural group, and you live according to its norms. And sometimes the norms that it teaches you are norms that you are not in the full sense a chooser. There are, for example, ethnic and or cultural and religious traditions that seem to tell women that they are not fully agentic choosers or indeed that tell all religious believers you are not a chooser of your religious belief. And so, according to this branch of liberal political theory, there was something anomalous about freedom of religion just as such, insofar as people actually meant their religions. And here again we get the problem of novelty. Well, when we, meant, when we said freedom of religion, we meant your freedom to choose among the various liberal Protestant churches in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We didn't mean the kind of people who really mean it. Um, but cultural freedom, freedom for traditions that seemed significantly outside the received cultural mainstream norm um, was treated as especially anomalous. Those people don't seem to be free to choose and so we can't in our defenses of liberal freedom of choice construct institutions or articulate rules that would leave them enslaved to their unchosen norms and traditions. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, what liberalism is, is a theory of toleration. Now this I think is a little bit closer to the truth. I do think that liberalism is constitutively a theory of religious toleration uh, among other things. However, what that amounted to was saying, and so there is nothing liberal to be found in our antagonists in this debate. And the question, the debate very quickly ceased to be a direct normative debate. What are the better sets of norms for a multicultural society? What are the better sets of laws and rules governing religious and cultural traditions? It became something more like, I'm the real liberal, no, I am. 
that problem, that impasse, novelty and a dispute over words and a dispute over the identity of being liberal, those are crucial to how I set about the problems with the book. One other problem in the source of the book that then becomes my, part of my strategy for a solution. Political theorists, as a habitual disciplinary matter, when we run out of things to say about a question, or when we're not sure how to proceed, or when we hit a dead end or an impasse, one of the things we do is we turn to the history of political thought. We have a suspicion that uh, there is richness and paths not taken and ideas left sitting on the table that can very often be resources to supplement when a contemporary intellectual discipline uh, runs itself dry. And I turned to the history of political thought in a very serious way after having written a book on multiculturalism that was all a contribution to these contemporary normative debates. Among my favorite liberal theorists in the history of political thought are Alexis de Tocqueville, John Stuart Mill, and Lord Acton. And here are things that I find in Tocqueville and Mill and Acton. Tocqueville and Mill, in particular, were intellectually very close. They were sometimes in their life personally close. They thought of themselves as being fundamentally aligned. They were on the same side. They used the word liberal for the side they were both on, but it ran deeper than that. They shared a diagnosis of the characteristic dangers that face humanity in a modern mass democratic age. They shared a sense of who their opponents in the world were. They shared a terrible fear of rising mediocrity and conformity in the world. However, Tocqueville famously goes to America and writes a book that is in substantial part about the ways in which the Americans have solved the problem of conformity and despotism in a democratic age, at least for now, by the use of the art of association, where association means both the formation of voluntary associations to fulfill all of their various purposes in an era when no single person can be powerful enough to do anything the way a noble in the Ancien Regime was, and civil associations by which he meant roughly municipal town and township level governments. By organizing in these ways, the Americans give themselves the capacity to not just subject all social action to the central state, which is what he thought had happened in contemporary France. One of Tocqueville's key intellectual contributions to the history of social thought is this emphasis on the importance of associations in modern life. And Mill thought he agreed with this. I talk in the book about ways in which Mill didn't really understand it, but for now we'll say Mill thought he agreed with this. But later, when Tocqueville wrote The Ancien Regime and the Revolution about the French Revolution and the growth of centralization in the French state, and in which Tocqueville argues that in important respects, the pre-revolutionary French were freer than were 19th century Frenchmen because all of the orders 
all of the estates, all of the privileged entities, the nobility, the cities, the guilds, the universities, the church, all of those things had taught people the habit of saying, I have rights, we have rights, that the king may not take from us. And they were resistant to the centralization of the Bourbon monarchs, they were resistant to Louis XIV and XV and XVI, in order to stand on the rights of their orders and their privileges. They knew how to say no to the state in a way that Tocqueville thought 19th century Frenchmen did not. And Mill saw this and he just couldn't see what the book was about. And his comments on the book are baffled. In fact, Austrian regime and the revolution is directly a continuation of themes that are expressly discussed as early as the introduction of a democracy in America. These aren't new thoughts on Tocqueville's part. Tocqueville's concerned with how to avoid despotic centralization. He's concerned with how to avoid excessive reliance on the state. But Mill is so out of sympathy with the ancien regime, with the estates and orders, that he can't see what the book is about at all. Conversely, Mill contributes to the history of liberal thought a really keen awareness of problems of social and communal conformity in general, and of the despotism of the patriarchal Victorian era family in particular. He was the first major figure in the liberal tradition to point to the male-headed household under the traditional rights and privileges of coverture at common law, under the traditional rights and privileges that fathers and husbands held, and to say, this is a site of despotism. We will use the words we have to express political value and to say, women and children, but especially problematically, adult women, are unfree in this world. They are reduced to a state that we ought to care about if we care about freedom. Tocqueville never directly commented on that. The Mill's Subjection of Women was published after his death, after Tocqueville's death. But in Democracy in America, when Tocqueville goes and sees the very conservative Calvinist and Protestant families of North America and contrasts them to the relatively open and libertine families of France in his own day, he celebrates the freedom that American women show in subjecting themselves, the freedom of choosing to be unfree. He understands that there's a sense in which women enter these conservative marriages and cease to be free actors, but he says, it's wonderful. They know what real freedom consists of for them, which is choosing to be unfree. And he never even asks a question, is this a real free choice on their part? Do they have viable alternatives? Uh, he never worries that maybe some of them don't want to. There's nothing but celebration and celebration expressly in terms of freedom of this. It seems to me that he would not have been able to see what Mill's subjection of women was about. More broadly, Mill's On Liberty is a book about unfreedom in culture. It's unfreedom in the ways that our backwards neighbors can have cultural expectations of us that become so cripplingly strong that they operate more effectively than state law could to restrict our real range of free choice. I think that Tocqueville sees something important about associational life 
and that Mill sees something important about the family and about the prospects for cultural conformity. And that they couldn't see what the other was up to struck me as important. Now, Mill also has an argument with Lord Acton, with whom he was not friendly, on the question of nationalism. Mill is a robust advocate of the emerging turn toward national self-determination in Europe, that the Habsburg Empire ought to be broken up and the constituent peoples ought to create nation states of their own. He treats this as a kind of uh, freedom of association. People surely ought to be free to choose the government under which they will live. And so they will create nice modern nation states of their own. Acton saw, I think far more accurately, that when the state is the nation, it creates an irresistible pull towards subservience toward the state. Because disagreement with the state becomes a kind of cultural treason, a violation of who one really is. And that multinational states could afford to be much more liberal, much more free on cultural questions because they were not so concerned with whether everyone's identity was the same. Acton is a federalist, a deeply committed federalist. And he says, the way forward is to turn the multinational empires into multinational federations. But that there's plurality in the same state of nations. It's just like there's plurality of churches. It's good for freedom because it teaches people not to identify too closely with the state and to remind them to be able to say no to it. There, it seems to me, Acton saw more clearly. Acton's a federalist. Acton crucially believes that federalism is the decisive contribution that modernity has made toward uh, the preservation of freedom in the world. If we are to have a free world, it must be a world of federal constitutions. And he believes this so strongly that in the wake of the American Civil War, he writes obsequious letters to Robert E. Lee in which he says, among other things, I mourn more for the stake which was lost at Richmond than I celebrate that which was preserved at Waterloo. This is a 19th century member of the British ruling class, 19th century member of the House of Lords. Uh, the stake which is preserved at Waterloo is English liberty against Napoleon. The loss of the Civil War, the loss, is worse than the win against Napoleon is better. He says this even though he knows slavery to be evil. He never wavered on that point. When Lee writes back things that are, to our eyes, a very clear statement that says, well, now after the war, we're going to go back to treating our blacks the way we want to treat them. It just sails right over Acton's head. He writes back another obsequious letter as if that passage never happens. He doesn't endorse slavery, but he thinks that federalism is so crucial to the preservation of human liberty that the idea that there was a meaningful cost in human freedom to the cause of the South doesn't arise in his writings. At best, we get these parallel sentences that say, slavery was wickedly defended and wickedly abolished. So how do I think about Great theorists in the tradition 
who could each of them see things and not see things that seemed to be in the same register. Acton could see that federalism was good for freedom and couldn't see that it was bad for it. Mill could see that the family was bad for freedom in a way that meant that he couldn't see that associations could be good for it, and so on. In the book, I argue that that structure runs very deep into the history of liberalism, into, indeed, its genealogy before there is such a thing as liberalism, and is central to liberal thought to this day. The problem that I characterize is freedom and intermediate groups, freedom and intermediate group life, admits of multiple answers. When I join an association, or when I grow up in an association, or when I live in any social body, any set of social norms that are subordinate to, intermediate from the state, how do we think about those norms relative to my freedom? One set of answers says, we care about freedom because we care about the kinds of free lives that people live. And for the same reasons that we care that people not be censored in their speech, we care about the general question, may people speak freely? Are they able to speak their mind in society? And if we find they can't speak their mind for reasons that arise out of intermediate group life rather than for reasons that arise out of state censorship, then, well, we should care about that too. At the extreme, this view becomes what I call congruence. The rights that we have against the state, the rights of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, due process, and all the rest, they are rights that we also have against all other social bodies. That view, I argue, is in that sense, in that articulation, incoherent. But it expresses a moral thought that I don't think is incoherent. Conversely, there's the moral thought, I'm free to form associations that do things. I'm free to live a life that is committed to purposes. And my freedom to join associations that do things and to live life according to purposes is a freedom to waive the exercise of my freedoms in particular times and places for particular purposes. I have freedom of religion. That doesn't mean I have the freedom to stand up in the middle of my Catholic mass, shout, hail Satan, upset the communion tray, and still be a Catholic. No, my freedom is my freedom to have a religion that means something, it has some content. And the content is going to mean there are things that I can't do. That's not in itself a violation of my freedom of religion. I call these two traditions rationalist and pluralist. Rationalist liberalism takes as its ally the rationalizing force of the modern Weberian state which proceeded in large part by overcoming the traditional inherited strength of medieval European institutions that we come to think of as intermediate institutions. The church, the university, guilds, cities, provinces, and so on. The rationalizing state in the Weberian sense extends rational bureaucratic rule over its whole territory. And when that social phenomenon is joined to the liberal impulse to liberate us from authority and despotism, then 
sometimes that results in really meaningful improvements in human freedom to free us from the power of the parish priest, as Voltaire would have had it. But sometimes, I argue, it really doesn't mean the enhancement of freedom. It means endorsing the state's characteristic problems, the ways in which the state is prone to excessive suspicion of intermediate group life, and to treat all sources of normative order that don't issue from the state with unwarranted suspicion. The state is a homogenizing force, and it views the diversity that arises in associational inter intermediate group life with unwarranted suspicion. Conversely, the pluralist liberal tradition, running backwards through the British pluralists, through Acton and Tocqueville, to Benjamin Constant and Montesquieu, and then before liberalism to a tradition I identify as ancient constitutionalism in early modern Europe. The pluralist tradition sees subjection to state authority as the crucial site of unfreedom that we want to worry about. And in order to prevent it, we want to build up sources of social authority that can meaningfully challenge the state, challenge it in political ways, challenge it meeting it on the terrain of really having power to wield challenge it by counterbalancing it in the way that in federalism we talk about the states as a counterbalance against the center. These views, as I depict them in the book, are not deductions from rival philosophical first premises about which we could say one is correct and the other is not, depending on which philosophical premise is right. Rather, they're divergent accounts of relative dangers and social power. They're divergent accounts even among people who think freedom is the same thing, as Mill and Tocqueville fundamentally did, but who disagree about which constellation of social forces pose the greater threats, pose the greater risk of concentrations of unfreedom. Their rival social theories operating in partly different registers, and they can both often be right. That is to say, the state and intermediate group life genuinely can be sources of illegitimate and dangerous power. They both wield authority, and authority generates power out of its own resources. There are reasons to worry about excess and overreach on both sides. I am a pluralist, and my propensity is to say that the balance of danger under the conditions of the modern Weberian state tend to lie with the centralizing, homogenizing state. But in saying that, I not only don't deny that intermediate group life can be a source of social power that we want to worry about from the perspective of whether people can live free lives, I say nothing that even contradicts that. I only offer a relative overall assessment. And so the thesis of the book, well, much of the work of the book is to develop pluralist liberalism as an available alternative, as I think it has often not been in contemporary political theory and has often not been in understandings of the history of liberal thought and of what that idea means. Well, much of the work is to develop pluralism and to make it intellectually available. The book is not a defense of pluralism. It is rather committed to the thesis that pluralism and rationalism sit uneasily together 
at the core of what it is to have a liberal theory of a free human life and a free society. And the tension between them is one that we don't overcome but must intellectually and sociologically live with. Thank you. Okay, uh, first I'd like to thank Pete and Claire for uh, the invitation to come back. Um, okay, so I'm going to comment on uh, the, the book that you just heard. Really, Jacob really only talked about the book at the end of his remarks. I'll, I'll develop that a little bit more. This book does not answer its questions, and by its own admission, its theory is impure. And that's why the book is so good. Of course, not every book that doesn't answer its questions is good. Many books claim to give definitive answers that are weak, limp, crazy, and delusional. How maddening is it to see an author delude himself and try to get over on us with poor reasoning or an improbable account of human psychology and behavior. No matter how passionately, willfully, or beautifully presented, a utopian fantasy is still just a fantasy. Until that is, it's attempted to uh, be implemented in the world, often with disastrous consequences. Jacob Levy's rationalism, pluralism, and freedom is the opposite of these. It does not give definitive answers to its questions because, as the book powerfully, and I think rightly shows, the issues cannot be definitively resolved. But that is not to say that Levy gives the reader nothing, quite the contrary. This book explores its topic from multiple points of view. It's impressively systematic and widely comprehensive. And in reading this book, I in fact had the, uh, the feeling that I had when I was reading Anna Karenina. Not that you're a Tolstoy or anything, don't get, right? But in reading Anna Karenina, the overarching plot of the story is so compelling, and I wanted to go on and find out what happened. And yet, every chapter is so rich and labors on one step, right, that I couldn't skip it over to get onto the plot. Um, but I couldn't, uh, uh, but, but reading it was also frustrating because I wanted to get back to the plot. And so I had that same kind of. Uh, push and pull in this book, that the overall art argument is really compelling and I really wanted to follow it each step, but each chapter and each subsection went into very comprehensive detail to prove its point um, and such that you know each one in itself was really very fine and very enjoyable, but in tension with the whole, I was left like that. Levy's book shows convincingly that the issues and tensions of liberal freedom cannot be disposed of. There's no silver bullet. Do X and we'll live happily ever after. In this way, the book is sober-minded, realistic, and responsible. I applaud the book, and I have no serious disagreement with its main argument. So what I'll do here is first, I'll sketch out the main points, and second, I'll offer a few uh, um, criticism since I am an academic after all and, and this is what I do. So what's the book's main argument? 
Levy persuasively shows that liberalism is not one thing with one way of thinking, one tradition, or one kind of justification. Rather, liberalism typically falls into two camps that he calls the rationalist and pluralist, and hence the first two words of the book's title, rationalism and pluralism, the two different kinds of traditions within liberalism. In making this distinction, he's working out Hayek's insight from the Constitution of Liberty, where uh, Hayek distinguishes between what he calls the French and British traditions of li liberty. And as useful as Hayek's distinction is, it places Montesquieu, Tocqueville, and Constant on the English side of the channel, and Hobbes, Paine, Priestley, Godwin, and a few others on the French side. So the labels are kind of problematic. Levy seeks to rationalize and really think through this account, and hence his categories of pluralistic and rationalistic, not a geographical division. Levy's particularly interested in the two camps' views of the role of intermediary institutions, made so famous by Montesquieu, Burke, and Tocqueville, among others. And this is where the title's third word, word freedom, comes in, right? With the freedom of intermediary institutions vis-a-vis um, -vis the state and the threat of freedom from, that comes from those. The rationalists view intermediary institutions and local authority as a threat to individual liberty, and they thus turn to the state to free individuals from the potentially tyrannical sub-state authorities, such as based on local government, local power structures, local traditional authorities, and some trans-state authorities like religions that are in some way larger than the state, even though they have a local basis within the state. Um, and uh, Levy acknowledges that, of course, these sub or non-state communities can be tyrannical. Local elites can illegitimately limit the freedom of their members through sincere or cynical reasons, and they can oppress non-group members in their midst. But Levy's more sympathetic to the pluralistic liberals' concerns about the abuse of state power. Pluralist liberals worry that the state, in its pursuit of justice, whether sincerely or insincerely, can be tyrannical and intrusive in uh, illegitimately tr trying to control and limit group behavior in the members of groups. In its pursuit of justice, the state squashes many freedoms too. Levy does a really nice job of showing the interplay between these two levels. And alas, the book is sobering in its acknowledgement of what, in a way, every queer thinker knows, that danger lurks everywhere. No rest is possible when it comes to guarding liberty. Vigilance must be eternal. What's nice about Levy's account is that even though he sides with the pluralists, he's not arguing that they are right, and he just talked about that, and that the rationalists are wrong. Rather, he argues, correctly in my opinion, that, quote, the two mindsets are an enduring and indeed necessary problem within liberal political thought, unquote. But insofar as it's obvious that danger lurks everywhere, can't they be transcended into a single comprehensive theory? No. This is one of the nicer arguments of the book. The two views have incompatible ways of viewing justice and freedom. The rationalist wants to free you via state action, even from behaviors to which you might find meaningful and to which you consent. And taken to an extreme, this is Rousseau's forcing you to be free. 
By contrast, the pluralist approach takes a bottom-up view and allows people to participate in the more organic associations and groups in society within reason. You can't sell yourself into slavery. It privileges the choice of individuals, not a comprehensive view of justice from first principles, even though acknowledging that group or local leaders can abuse such powers. While both conceptions of justice and freedom might overlap, and frequently do, in the end, they have different grounds and different methods of proceeding. Levy argues, quote, not only that tension between rationalism and pluralism within liberal thought is longstanding, but also that it is to a large degree irresolvable. Part one of the book is the explanation of these two competing visions and a demonstration of the theoretical schism between them. Part three of the book revisits this again uh, uh, to argue that a proper understanding of both camps, quote, leaves unavailable any ultimate harmonization of rationalist and pluralist approaches to freedom. Another quote, we have to resist easy narratives of harmony. We must reject as a, quote, Panglossian belief the idea that there is, quote, natural harmony between the state and legitimate associations, even in a liberal democracy, right? So the problem doesn't end. The tension is always going to be there. Part two of the book is a historical digression away from the, the main kind of argument, uh, from the principled argument, in order to show that the poorest liberalism is in fact a longstanding part of the liberal tradition. I particularly enjoyed the first chapter of part two on the prehistory of intermediary institutions such as guilds, universities, and cities. I say prehistory because Levy nicely emphasizes that these institutions existed before the current nation state system. And it's only in the context of the latter that they are intermediary, right? But actually they predate it. At the end of the book, Levy re revisits the question of the freedom in these local intermediary institutions for today. Part two takes us through various pluralist appeals to what early modern thinkers variously called our Germanic past or the ancient constitution, that's the phrase that Levy prefers, uh, through readings of Calvinist resistance theory via a whole slew of people, the monomarchs, Althusius and Hotman, as well as Molesworth, Montesquieu, Smith, Burke, Constant, and Tocqueville. In parallel, we see those rationalist liberals who argued with them, such as Voltaire, Paine, Destutrucci, De Tracy, and John Stuart Mill. In Levy's own words, quote, I hope to displace understandings of the history of liberal thought that focuses overwhelmingly on social contract theory. And another quote, an important aim of the detail in part two is to make the map of the past sufficiently vivid as to compete with the maps that have already captured theorist imaginations. And in my opinion, he achieved this admirably. It would be very difficult to read this account of liberalism's pluralist wing and not be impressed by its longevity, consistency, and power. So move over social contract theory. There's a new tradition in town. Let me now raise a few questions. While I very much like the power of Levy's account of the pluralistic liberal tradition, I think it could have been even more powerful. In some ways, the hero of the book, certainly at least one of its main heroes, is Montesquieu. Levy describes him as the crucial figure in his account. Why? 
because it was he who, quote, appropriated the pre-state medieval inheritance and the ideas of the ancient constitutionalism, making them intellectually available to the 18th and 19th century. Okay. I love Montesquieu, and I have a portrait of him hanging in my office. I don't dispute the importance that Levy gives to Montesquieu and for the reasons that he states. I wonder, however, if Montesquieu is not an even more complex and interesting figure than the book's account allows. I found the short account of the Persian letters to be one of the few places in the book that felt to me like a bit of a reach. Uzbek is there described as showing that, quote, it is especially the Enlightenment philosophical world traveler convinced of his intellectual greatness who is prone to despotism, unquote. Well, Uzbek is shown, it is shown to not really be a philosopher, to have only a veneer of philosophy and not to be the real thing. So using him as an indictment of the enlightened philosophes seems to me like a little bit of a stretch. The main issue is on Levy's reading of the spirit of the laws, which is the linchpin of his account. In interpreting this book, Levy presents Montesquieu, Montesquieu as a, at least the part that he talks about, as a kind of straightforward historian. Yet Montesquieu's account of the ancient constitution is variously described by Levy in his own words as quote-unquote novel, as quote-unquote sharply unconventional, and as rejecting all of the quote-unquote traditional sides of the constitutional dispute. Why is Montesquieu so different? Did he have new empirical data that informed his innovative views? No. So what's motivating him? In one place, Levy notes that Montesquieu's famous account of England is, quote, idealizing and hypothetical, as if using England as a starting point for reflections on a polity that could exist. I agree with this reading of Montesquieu's England. Now I wonder, though, might Montesquieu not be doing the same thing with his account of the ancient constitution? Indeed, at another point, Levy notes that amidst, quote, a long study of the problems of Roman, Gothic, and feudal law, or in other words, the different threads that, according to Levy, make up the ancient constitutionalism, Montesquieu jarringly, and these are Levy's words, interrupts his own history to speculate on the motives of the, quote, unquote, philosopher who imagined himself a legislator. Might not this apply to Montesquieu himself? And where Montesquieu says other philosophic legislators went awry, might Montesquieu not be aiming to correct their mistakes and properly and truly introduce moderation into the world? In other words, why take the history merely as history? Why not see it as a political philosophical deed, as the creative deed of a philosophic legislator? And all of that comes from Levy's own account. Uh, what I did here is just present his pieces, which to me suggests something more than the way Levy assembles them. But when I couple that with some other things from the spirit of the laws, Montesquieu's account of customary history, which seems uh, just as much invented as factual, um, one starts to get a sense of what Montesquieu might have meant in the famous last sentence of the Spirit of the Laws' preface, and I too am a painter, right? Not a historian, a creator. So if I'm right, there's much more going on in Montesquieu than mere history, 
and Montesquieu's reasoning for this might very well be relevant to the history of liberalism. Now, Levy acknowledges in the book, in fairness, the contentious nature of interpreting Montesquieu. Um, and it's possible to just dismiss my remarks as adopting a position in that debate that he doesn't need to enter into. And that might be right. But insofar as Montesquieu is the central figure in the story, why not breathe as much life as possible into him so that people are actually tempted to read and think about him and not just reduce him to someone talking about these three threads of history that nobody's ever heard of and cares about today. Now, one main omission, I think, connected to Montesquieu. And there might only be about 10 people in the world who would make this point. So I apologize if it seems obscurantist. But I thought perhaps Claire had this in mind when she invited me to uh, be the commentator. So blame her, not me. How's that for responsibility? <laughs> um, in her book on Montesquieu, Judith Schlar cites Voltaire as describing Montesquieu as Montaigne plus institutions. Montaigne refers to the 16th century uh, French thinker, in fact, from the same part of France as Montesquieu. Their chateau both still exist today. They're very close to each other. Go to Bordeaux, rent a car. It's a delightful day trip to go to both of them. Like Montesquieu, Montaigne was a member of the Bordeaux parliament. Montaigne was also mayor of Bordeaux. And the then history of Bordeaux, Montaigne was only the third person reelected. He was a great influence on Henry of Navarre, who he became Henry IV, enacted the Edict of Nantes, the first great act of religious toleration in France, uh, or in Europe, arguably. So he's, he's a, a huge person connected with the issues that Jacob is interested in and that this book focuses on. Like Montesquieu, Montaigne wrote a varied, unwieldy main work called Essays. In fact, he coined the word essay as a noun. So all of you students who don't like writing essays, blame this Montaigne guy. But even more to the point, their ideas are quite similar, with the exception that Montesquieu added institutions to secure their tolerant, freedom-loving sensibilities. Like Levy, and less like his own 16th century contemporaries, Montaigne saw threats to freedom everywhere, from the state and local institutions, from attachments to concrete associations, i.e. pluralism, as well as the excesses of a rationalizing reason run amok. Indeed, I would argue that both Bordelais, Montesquieu and Montaigne, see such threats everywhere, in large part due to their astute psychological observations on the power of habit, law, power, and the desire to believe, and how one convinces oneself of the craziest things when one wants to. They both talk about how anxiety, fear, hope, etc., corrupt reason, and how the rationalizing tendencies of the mind in turn create anxiety, fear, and hope. In other words, like Levy himself, they both are not only on the side of pluralism, which they all three are, but they see the dangers from both rationalism and pluralism. In other words, Montesquieu could be seen not only as taking one side of the great debate in liberalism, but as embracing the full complexity of the issue. 
and coupling, Monte, Monte, uh, coupling Montesquieu with Montaigne, this overall appreciation could be dated back another 150 years to the 1570s, 80s, and 90s. Insofar as Levy's aim is to show not just the long-standing existence of pluralist liberalism, because it would do that, but also to sh shed light on the fundamental, ultimate irresolvability of it, these two thinkers, I think, could be great allies. So if you're convinced, perhaps we can do an article together or something. So one final thought. Just as uh, more could be gleaned via psychological reading of Montesquieu and Montaigne, I'd like to conclude by raising a psychological question. So Levy's book is impure because it's not merely a rational inquiry but appeals to psychological and sociological claims about human tendencies, right? That's the impurity, right? So from the theorist's point of view, there's pure reason, da -da, right? what comes out of my mind, right? And people who hold on to that, the fact that the world acts differently is not an objection they recognize. But then other people actually look at the world, psychology and sociology and human nature, and they say, hey, we have to consider this. There's real tendencies of behavior, not just pure theory. And, and that's what this book does a lot of. Um, and so it does that at one point with those who are attracted to power on the central level versus on the local level. But my question, why are some people attracted to rational liberalism and some people attracted to the pluralist liberalism? If they are somehow irreconcilable, right, there's got to be something else going on that makes people go one way or the other. Um, and what does it say about them? And in this light, I'd, I'd maybe like to offer a, a reflection on, on this book that even though you're on the side of pluralism and you have the history part in the middle, which is the impure part, is very much a kind of rationalist inquiry, right? Without um, jokes or subversion, um, right? It's a straightforward, you know, and that, that's both its power, and, but it makes you, in a way, a kind of rationalist defender of the pluralist position, right? And so the, the means of the one camp used against itself to support the other camp. And so, you know, is that correct about you? And, and what's going on with uh, the, the two sides um, the ra on the rationalist course of account? But, but it was, it's really a very good book, and I highly recommend it. Thank you. Okay, it's a real privilege to be part of this uh, conversation. Alan started by thanking uh, Pete for the invitation. Um, I don't know if I should be th thanking Pete. Uh, about 15 minutes before starting the event, I had no idea that I was supposed to be formally a part of uh, this conversation. I was supposed to be there with you enjoying uh, the, the, the discussion. Uh, and Pete made me an offer that it was very difficult uh, to refuse. He told me that I should be reading Richard Boyd's uh, comments. I told him that I'm going to do that with my foreign accent, that it would be bizarre trying to get out of this. He said, no, you have that gravitas given by your accent that would be improving the quality of the comments. So here I am. 
so here I am trying to improvise. I have no idea what I'm going to say. <laughs> so that makes things even much more um, interesting. However, I am pretty familiar with Jacob's project. I had the privilege to come and formally twice in the past on this project. First of all, he mentioned that we organized here at George Mason University a manuscript review conference. So I had the privilege of being part of that conversation at the first stage of the volume. And then the American Political Science Association organized uh, in its annual event a special panel uh, on this book. And again, I had the chance of uh, making some comments there. Fortunately, this time I have to read uh, Richard Boyd's comments. Uh, why I'm saying fortunately because Jacob did not like my comments during the American Political Science Association uh, a special meeting. Uh, uh, actually, he, he quite criticized me for those, uh, for those comments. Now, that being said, let me just, I, I had the chance to just read this, uh, uh, this note and I'm going to, 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 to briefly outline what I think are the main points of this, especially because Pete in the meanwhile signaled me that I should be also very brief in my intervention. Um, so uh, basically, basically uh, he is questioning the taxonomy or the typology that is at the foundation of the work. And he is doing that in three ways. So the first way, the first way he is doing that, um, he is asking whether this is an, I'm, uh, this is my language. This is actually a taxonomy, which means a sort of empirical exercise of building, clustering the two traditions out of empirical data, in this case, text or intellectual tradition, or is a typology, an ideal type. So this is, as you know, the first reaction when you see a typology, you go there. So he has already done that. And then he has given a couple of examples. As you may expect, Mill is one example, in case of which you could find elements of both rationalism and pluralism. And then the other one is Tocqueville, as you may, uh, uh, as you may expect. And then he's listing a couple of other authors pushing this line of taxonomy versus uh, typology and then questioning the conceptual accuracy of the typology in question by using counter examples in which the two are combined. So this is the first way of challenging the taxonomy. The second way of challenging the taxonomy is using, is to challenge the idea of sociological pluralism. Yes, he says, Jacob is making a lot out of this sociological pluralism. He says that his sociological pluralism is different from the philosophical pluralism of an Isaiah Berlin or a Michael Oakeshott, but at a second look, you may discover that this sociological pluralism as defined by Jacob could be traced back to some moral elements that are, the are built up in the relationship between the individual and the community or the individual and the state. In other words, he is questioning this dichotomy or the relationship between the moral um, uh, pluralism and sociological pluralism by tracing back, reducing sociological pluralism to a sort of moral pluralism. So in this case, and I'm quoting, Pluralist liberals generally regard certain pre-political or local moral claims as having greater priority than the obligations of the community, while the rationalist liberals are doing the other way round. So this is the second way of challenging the foundational um, uh, dichotomies at the, at, the, at the core of the project. The last one is an intriguing one, I would say. Um, he, his, his point is this. 
what if this dichotomy between rationalism and pluralism is dispositional? Dispositional in the way Michael Wakeshott is defining rationalism, an inclination of the mind that gives you some propensities to think in certain terms and approach in certain term, uh, terms things. So in other words, it's more about personalities than it's about these taxonomies built up on intellectual history or the empirical analysis of the way people think, have thought about these issues in, in the past. So in other words, he says, uh, it is idiosyncratic, the personalities of individuals thinkers rather than environmental pattern or thought of constructive traditions. Uh, thinkers who are closer to what Adam Smith called the man of system as a sort of disposition are closer to the rationalist perspective while the pluralists are more comfortable with the messiness of the world and the plurality of the world. So this is in a nutshell, this is in a nutshell the core of Richard Boyd's uh, take on this, an attack or a criticism of the basic dichotomies and the taxonomies at the core of the Let me just say one more thing about the relationship between this project and the kind of work that they are doing. Why are we so interested in this project at George Mason in our research program? I think there are two reasons, and both of them I think that are obvious, but I'm going to state the obvious because I think it uh, puts the project in a slightly different light if you, uh, from the angle of our type of approach as opposed to the typical political theory perspective. First, as you know, we are interested here in uh, discussing issues of coordination, cooperation, and governance in conditions of deep heterogeneity. And, we are, and this is at the core of that problem. So it's an important contribution to the type of broader literature we are participating and conversation we are participating. Second, and I think that this is very important, in the division of labor, as you know, in social sciences, uh, we have on the one hand ideal theorists that are talking about the desirable, the space of the desirable. Then we have people that are talking about feasibility, feasibility issues, in what measure the desirable is feasible, which is institutional design. And then we have the applied level of that possibility, in what measure it is possible to apply the institutional design based on the desirable ideal theory in public policy, public governance, and so on and so forth. As you know, in the division of labor, we cover all those things, but here at George Mason, we are more on the institutional, comparative institutional analysis and other issues that are related to the feasibility principle and also to the possibility principle. Calculation in our tradition is important, economic calculation as a possibility principle and the feasibility principle. So I think that his work is actually building a bridge, an important bridge between Ideal theorizing, typical, the, typically the work of political theorists, and the kind of work that we are doing in the feasibility uh, uh, space. So his, his contribution, I think, is extremely important in this respect. And this is one of the many reasons why we thought here at George Mason University that we should not only engage with, uh, with, uh, with his work, but also try to engage he, himself uh, with our research uh, projects uh, here. So thank you so much, Pete. Normally, we'd give you a chance to respond, but we have about 15 minutes. So I think maybe you can respond maybe in response to audience as well. Um, so we have a mic here. Um, and uh, so raise your hand. I'll call you out. And then you ask a question to either Alan, uh, Paul, or to Jacob. So floor is open. Solomon, you get to ask the first question. Thanks, Paul. 
Um, yeah, so I wanted to ask uh, Jacob, so in terms of the sort of balance between the two, you see this a fundamental tension in liberalism. I was wondering if you think that other, right, so rather than just between rationalist liberalism and pluralist liberalism, like between liberalism and, and whatever there is in terms of illiberal, although it's hard to, they wouldn't self-describe that way, illiberal political philosophies, do they also have these kind of internal tensions or are they absent? And do you think that this tension is one of the reasons for the sort of perceived intellectual failure of the liberal project uh, going into the 20th century, but also sort of its enduring appeal? Uh, or do you think that there is something else going on there? Like, is that part of, not this story, but what this story goes into? Um, I'm not gonna have anything to say about the crisis of the 20th century. Um, I think that that goes too far beyond anything that I have expert knowledge of. Uh, but let me say two different things about the relationship between liberalism and other sets of views. One, uh, partly that arose out of the discussion of the complexity of the thinkers that I talk about within the liberal tradition, including Montesquieu out mentioned by Allen and Mill mentioned by Richard uh, via Paul, um, that Montesquieu knows that there's such a thing as dangers to freedom at the local level, that Mill knows there's such a thing as dangers to freedom from the state, is part of what makes them, as it were, both meaningfully liberals. Um, the, my rationalist liberals are not Jacobins. They, they are not people who are ruthlessly devoted to the destruction of all non-state order for the fun of it, or for the fun of it with a banner that says liberty, equality, fraternity at the top of it. And uh, my pluralist liberals are not anarchists, or perhaps more saliently, they are not conservatives devoted to uh, the unalterable integrity of all of the sub-state groups. There are some clear ways in which we could look to liberalism's neighbors and rivals and say, rationalism it has been more congenial for a long time to things within socialism and pluralism has been more congenial to a long time to certain traits within conservatism. However, however, I think that that risks confusing us about both the socialist and conservative traditions too. And I say uh, very briefly in the book that I think that we can find this structure, this uneasy balance about how we think about the power of the state relative to other things in society, in the socialist and conservative traditions too. Uh, guild socialism is a kind of pluralism. The defense of um, the communal farming of the, 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 the right of farmers to farm the commons before enclosure, that is a kind of localist socialism. We get localism and pluralism of a variety of kinds on the left, not only rationalistic state socialism. And conversely, while there are really important pluralist conservatism associated, for example, with Robert Nisbet, um, conservatism isn't just the theory of the free church. It is also sometimes the theory of throne and altar, in which you join the power of church authority to the power of central state because you care about the virtuous character of the whole citizenry. And so I think that because liberalism, socialism, and conservatism are all of them party ideas within the modern state, about the modern state, 
how shall we use state power and when shall we trust it? We have reason to expect that all of them will have strands that are more and strands that are less sympathetic to the direct use of state power and strands that are more or less sympathetic to all of the variety of institutions that preceded it. And I think that there are parallel works to be written on the tensions within conservative and socialist thought. Whether you're familiar with um, Chandras Kukatha's work, uh, The Liberal Archipelago, and his assertions that the only way to overcome this tension is to <clears throat> abolish the state but create different jurisdictions in which individuals can freely enter or exit, uh, choosing the specific combination of elements that they find desirable. And my criticism when I talk to him is essentially that um, there might be groups, and that also pertinent to your uh, uh, pluralist uh, version of freedom, that do not actually accept the concept of coexistence and freedom of entry and exit. Uh, and that the, 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 the idea of, of, of pluralism entails this kind of a self-destructive tolerance of, of, of intolerant groups that you know, will, it works well in idea, in, 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 in general theory, but it is not, it doesn't accommodate the idea that domination is not just inwards within the group, but it's also odd works from one group against the others. Chandran was my advisor uh, when I was a student in Australia for a year. He's someone whose work I've admired since the multiculturalism debates that I was working on back at the time. And The Liberal Archipelago is a great book of political theory. It is one of the finest books of political theory of the last generation. Um, and I think it is the best statement that we have of the pluralist um, liberal vision as a vision. I admire it deeply and in, there are ways in which it's closer to me than any other work in contemporary liberal political theory. And yet, uh, you know, and, and yet at, at the end of the day, I, I do disagree with its bottom line and in ways that parallel things that you're talking about. I emphasize the ways in which the non-state orders act when they are intermediate orders. And the way in which they help to serve our freedom against the background of the fact of the modern state, which I treat as a historical and sociological fact, not a decision we made and not a decision we can unmake in any straightforward way. Uh, they act differently toward us when they are a balancing feature against something else in the background than when they exhaust the social landscape. And early in the book I talk about the difficulties with having the social landscape being exhausted by our associational lives and the ways in which that would sharpen the ways that associations and groups can impair and threaten our freedom in ways that make it then impossible to do what he wants to do and give some of the moral legitimacy of consent, or at least of assent, as he puts it, to our memberships in these other groups. When they've exhausted the social space, that, and when there's nowhere else for me to go, the fact that I haven't exited doesn't count as legitimation in the way that it needs to on a really robust reconstruction of the whole social world as freedom of association. Uh, 
it matters what the shape of the rest of the world is into which I could exit. And that world has a shape when there's a Weberian state in the background. That matters for how we think about what the groups can do in between. So I, I know it, I admire it, I recommend the book very highly, but at the end of the day, I don't agree with it. Uh, Brian Kaplan. I just have a lot of trouble understanding what all the fuss is about with intermediary groups oppressing their members. Just in the United States, it's legal to start your own compound, and yet almost no one lives in a compound. There are a number of high-profile groups that we can talk about as possibly oppressing their members like the Amish, but again, the fraction of the population in these, in these groups is very tiny. So I'm just having trouble figuring out why it's a big deal and like, you know, like, like the theoretical possibility these groups could be oppressing their members or could get out of control seems to be so far from where we are even in, in, in the United States so or like you know, almost any other first world country so I'm just wondering where this is all where this is all coming from in a way um, so people who are less pluralistic than I am would give you an answer here that starts with the word Islam and to say uh, sure among the traditional nice Protestant sects that have domesticated themselves to the American political order whether by withdrawing from it like the Amish or by becoming less revolutionary than they used to be like the Calvinists, sure, then we don't have to worry so much. However, when you have whole communities whose members are raised in ways that make it hard for them to imagine alternatives, when you have dispersed authority within those communities, say fathers and husbands, enforcing rules that make it hard for people to learn that they have other choices, um, then we at least have things we want to take a second look at. I don't think we need to characterize whole communities as total communities. I don't think we need to worry about them, about persons being completely swallowed and dominated, to ask salient questions. Um, we have questions about the right amount of freedom of speech within universities. There's one urge to say, well, universities being devoted to free and open debate must have a right of freedom of speech within them that is at least the equal of the freedom of speech that we have in the broader civil society. Um, and we have people who worry about conformism, who say there's a culture of suppression of speech in university life. There are rules that are internal rules to some universities hate speech rules, harassment rules, trigger warnings. Uh, and all of these are so inimical to a culture of free and open speech and debate that we want to characterize there as being a problem, and that problem has something to do with freedom. Uh, I, I'm able to generate sets of answers about what to worry about and what not to, but in order to characterize there as being a question to ask at all, we have to be willing to say, Yes, it could be the case that within our associational life, within our pluralistic institutions, there are internal rules that relevantly count as having something to do with freedom and ways that inter those internal rules could pile on top of each other in ways that we would ultimately want to criticize in the name of freedom. I do think that's a legitimate starting gate question, even though as pluralist, I routinely end up giving answers that are friendly to groups' ability to manifest their internal rules. But I think against where your inclination in the question is, 
I do want to treat it as a legitimate starting gate question. Are these sets of rules, are these internal power structures, are these internal authority structures um, worrisome from the perspective of values of freedom and liberty? different perspective is when I hear your questions, I'm very inclined to just say, let's look at modern social science, and I would never look at what 19th century philosophers think about it, and you seem to do the opposite. I can understand wanting to do both, but it still seems like if someone is getting worried about a problem, that you would begin by laying out the facts and seeing whether the problem is microscopic or not. While I do make real efforts in the book to engage with contemporary political science as well, I... Um, the history is part two, not the whole thing. Um, social science only knows, social science doesn't tell us what its concepts and categories are that it measures. And human and social orders aren't self-interpreting. They don't come with labels attached that say measure me. When I want to ask the question, is there freedom here or not? The operationalization of that is not self-evident. And I do think that both contemporary philosophy and social theory and also the richness that we find in the history of social thought can make real progress in helping us understand where to look and what we're looking at when we're faced with a social world that isn't self-labeled and isn't self-interpreting. Cameron. Well, I like the way you put the debate as between the relative threat of uh, the threat to freedom from these various quarters which suggests that the balance between those two conceptions of liberalism should swing based on which is the most salient, based on things in history. So I might think of World War II as causing us to swing more towards pluralism, or you mentioned the threat of Islam swinging us more towards rationalism. So what do you see as the watershed moments in history that swung the balance one way or the other? The balance in our right answers or the balance in... In the way people think about the problem. Okay. Um... So the, the crystallization of the modern state in circa the early 1500s and the democratization of the modern state in circa the late 1700s, early 1800s are the two most important that I talk about in the book. Um, the democratization of the modern state does a lot to make rationalism more attractive to people in the generations that I'm looking at. People who new to distrust an absolute monarch, then don't distrust the same power when it is wielded by an absolute parliament. Uh, and, the, and pluralists from the French Revolution onward are constantly fighting an intellectual uphill battle against people who say, well, sure, we worried about that power when it was kings who had it, but why would we, we worry now when it's the people who have it? And then you need to do work to say why it is that state institutions are things in their own right. And the fact that the people live somewhere in the background of them doesn't utterly transform their basic dynamics. Uh, the historical part of the book stops roughly with the uh, early 20th century. And I don't talk about, again, the crisis of the mid 20th century. I don't have particular things to say about how that reshaped intellectual life. It put liberalism as a whole, as was asked in the first question, put liberalism as a whole on, on the back foot um, in a way that only started to recover from over the course of the last two generations. Last question, John. You mentioned free speech in the context of college campuses. 
How would you respond to the idea that we don't need to be concerned about these questions at, because at least at private universities, school administrators have an incentive to get the optimal free speech code correct? Uh, I think that's, that, that's as we're simply wrong. Um, the incentives faced by administrators within a system are never only market signals, even if we think it is an attractive feature of universities that they think of themselves as businesses responding to market signals, which I don't. Um, bureaucrats and administrators face incentives that have to do with the structure of the institution. And the market signals can be extremely muted by the time they ever reach managerial and administrative classes. They can respond to who are noisy actors. They can respond to simply a desire to keep a steady ship, even if that is at significant odds with uh, market incentives. And moreover, given the difficulty that any mid to high quality private college or university in America would have at ever going bankrupt. The question of what the discipline they face is, is really difficult. Um, they have cushions that have to do with their relationships to alumni that are a significant barrier to anything like simple market systems. They face a lot of incentives. Before I uh, stop talking and turn it back to Pete, I want to not only thank um, uh, Alan, Paul, and Richard, as well as Pete and Claire, uh, for lots of good and interesting comments now and in past sessions, as Paul alluded to, but also to plug another set of really rich commentaries that have been written on the book over the last two weeks at the blog bleedingheartlibertarians.com, where a couple of my co-bloggers, but a half dozen scholars from outside the blog and from other normative traditions among them, one historian, two philosophers, two political theorists, and three legal scholars all wrote really substantial pieces, either engaging with the book or taking the book as a point of departure for new ideas they develop on their own. And I really strongly recommend all of those commentaries. They're really rich and interesting in their own right for the things that those really good scholars have to say, arising some, in some cases out of my book being in the background, but because they are really good scholars of federalism and religious freedom and the history of liberal thought and more things that arise over the course of the book, please go have a look. The commentaries are really rich and interesting.